This is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Love Marriage. And I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I don't want to talk about them. The, the what? The, the what? I'm not familiar with the mumbles, mumbles, whatever you're talking about, the super game or it's something. The football game, you know, the big end of the year game. Oh, did the Kansas City team not do well? The Chiefs did not. Did not do well. My son cried. The whole family was gathered together to watch it on Zoom. And there was a moment when I leaned down and said to my entire family, we're going to have to step away from the pain. Well, do you want to talk about something more cheerful? Yes, I do. What if I told you that Chang Ray Lee, who I know is a friend of yours, had a new book out and we were going to have him on the show? I would say that would brighten my day. Well, we can do that because it's true. This week on the Fiction Nonfiction podcast, we're lucky to be joined by Chang Ray Lee. Chang is the author of six novels, which include Native Speaker, Adjust Your Life, and Aloft. His fourth novel, The Surrendered, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, and his 2014 novel, On Such a Full Sea, was a finalist for the NBCC and won the Heartland Fiction Prize. He also has won numerous awards, including the Hemingway Foundation Pen Award, the American Book Award, and the ALA Notable Book of the Year Award. Chang has written for The New York Times, The New Yorker, and Condé Nast Traveler, among others. He also currently teaches creative writing at Stanford University. Today, we're excited to talk about his newest novel, My Year Abroad. Chang, I'm so glad you could join us. Yeah, thanks a lot, Sibi. Hey, good to see you. And Whitney. <laughs> I remember being with you the night that you found out that uh, The Surrendered was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. That was very exciting. I think we were at like Alchemist and Barrister or something like that. Yeah, something like that. Something like that in Princeton. And, uh, you know, it's always, it's always uh, nice to be noted. Nice to win, of course. <laughs> that book absolutely was it was worthy of winning that prize, I thought. Um, but we're going to talk about this new book, which I also really love. It follows the story of a young college student named Tiller, who is, by his own admission, a slightly below average guy in all categories. When we meet him, however, he's living with a 30-something woman named Val and her eight-year-old son. I was hoping you could read a passage that opens up and sort of descri- open, opens up the book early on and describes their relationship. Yeah, sure. Um... Just to back, uh, set it up a little bit, uh, her name is Val and her, her son, Vij, uh, Victor Jr., and we call him Vij. Uh, they're kind of in witness protection because her former husband, ex-husband, was, uh, you know, involved in some sh- shady stuff. And uh, in this scene, Tiller is the uh, character's name. He's a 20-year-old guy who's had a whole year abroad with uh, this Chinese businessman. But this is a storyline which we check out how he settled uh, into a kind of domestic situation um, where they're sort of hiding. And uh, in this in this scene, uh, he encounters a fellow who seems to be a little uh, nosy about uh, where they are and who they are. So this is a scene in the in the sub- suburb that I call Stagno. Stagno, as you say in Italian. Uh, and the guy's name is Todd. I'm sort of with the VA, he said letting a cigarette butt drop to the curb. I do contract work for them, to be honest, as an investigator. Can you guess what I'm looking for? Nope, said Tiller. I bet you can, or said I. Come on, Rudder, take a guess. My name's Tiller. Sorry, Tiller. I think you already know. I really don't. Try. So I took an earnestly trying breath. Fraud, I ventured. 
Bingo, he shouted, and I could tell just by the way his voice instantly and lethally sharpened that Todd Brown, or whatever his real name was, was schooled in the ways of hurting people, sometimes snuffing them too, bingo being the last dumb word they'd hear. People take benefits they're not eligible for, like saying they're married to a service person when they weren't, or getting remarried and hiding it, or falsely claiming dependent children. I'm looking into a number of people in this area. I got a whole book of them. This is when Todd Brown showed his hand, which he might have only done to some random bored teen or bored lady with a Pekingese, for despite how blatantly lame his whole deal was, guys like him can depend on most of us being indifferent to everything, totally not caring if something isn't directly affecting us right now. Before this last year, I was like that. Maybe I'd say I gave two shits about the plight of others or the doomed planet, but my genuine condition was that there was no way I could do anything about it because I had no clues about how. But I have some now. See, he said, he had a thin ring binder of clear plastic folders inset with pictures of various people, most of them obviously downloaded off the internet at home printed, each sticky labeled with a bogus address. There are way too many streets with tree and president's names. I have locations, but many keep moving and we don't know where they went. Take a peek. Nobody likes a snitch, I said. He winced, something stirred, muddy, at the core of his perp morality. He pushed his sunglasses up the crooked bridge of his nose while his other hand gripped the steering wheel, the leather of his glove getting shiny as it stretched. I could feel how angry he suddenly was, lasers shooting out from his eyes and getting greenhoused behind his shades, building up all this pissy heat. He wants to bring me pain, is how I read him, and had we been in a nighttime urban alley instead of an exurban development on a bright spring afternoon, I'm pretty sure he would have tried. Instead, he tightly replied, just say if anybody looks familiar. I flipped through each page, two or three headshots per, pausing for effect whenever someone had curly hair just to keep him in limbo. I went through the binder, viewing several pages twice, and then gave it back to him. Sorry, Todd, I said, instructing my lungs to flatten, my heart to slow, but I don't recognize anyone. He grunted, fine, and tugged the folder back and rather rudely powered up the window. I saluted him, but before he could pull away, I quickly pedaled in front of the SUV and then around the passenger side toward the back, where I pulled out the faithful companion to the smokes I always carry, the little folding knife with a blade I keep razor sharp. As I drifted by, I flicked it out and made a shallow foot-long incision in the SUV's rear tire, deep enough to compromise the sidewall, but not enough to let out any air. At least, not just yet. Temperature and speed and pressure would take care of that. I gave a tap to the back window to send Todd Brown on his way. He couldn't know that later on he'd end up being a filler item on the 11 o'clock news, a nasty one-car wreck on the interstate, driver transported to regional hospital. I admit I don't want T Todd Brown to recover. I am almost certain he is a bad fellow. He squealed a little rubber as he shot down the street, swerving out of the neighborhood and onto the county road, heading north toward the highway. I pedaled back to Val's the long way, just in case he decided to double back, but he didn't. And as I rode up the driveway, the neighbor boy, Rafe, was standing there with his hands out in a WTF splay. Rafe's a uh, junior high stoner, and normally we would have bullshitted for a while, but I just coasted his bike to him and shotgunned and went into the house. My chest was busting back and forth like a woofer. I wanted to be with Val. 
seeing that tinty picture of her and Victor Sr. in Todd Brown's loose leaf, both of them mugging for the camera with their hair windblown and with the Golden Gate Bridge in the background, taken in no doubt happier times, somehow crushed me. Not because I was jealous, but because I wished for Val that she could go back there. I wish she could have stayed in that moment forever. Of course she couldn't. No one can. They tell you to live in the moment, not to constantly look backward, uh, look ahead or backward, or try to add it all up, but to taste the full ripe fruit of the now. But if you really did, you'd stay there, stringing yourself along like some kind of addict, jacking yourself in until all that sweetness couldn't do anything else but turn rotten. So what should we do? Instead, uh, inside, I found Val pedaling on the stationary bike. We have a mini gym set up, so we don't have to leave the house too much. And I surprised her when I touched my forehead to her back. I held her slowly pivoting hips. Her pace is more a river bike tour in Europe than a shouty spin class. Still, her sport top was damp, but smelled good anyway. And Val, just like she would, only barely paused and then kept going the blendering whirs of the machine tuning through a densely fleshy body. Her steady rhythm quelled most of the leaping inside me. It amazed me how she always generated just the right amount of delicious heat. Soon enough, she dismounted and plucked out her earbuds and turned to me with a flag of worry in her eyes, and she said, What's up, kiddo? Not much, I told her. I just missed you. Well, I missed you, she said, gently squeezing my earlobe. Should we think about ordering some dinner? Sure, I said. What do you feel like? Vito's? Phoenix Garden? You decide, I said. My treat. I was already thinking about what Victor Jr. might enjoy, his fingertips shimmery with grease, when Val kissed me, not just a peck, her lips warmed from the light exercise. What's that for? I don't know, she said. There's something going on with you. Is it a good going on? She blinked, whether yes or no, not really mattering. She smiled. You know, you're an, you're an amenable young man. I'm still a boy, I said, knowing the whole truth. Then you're an amenable boy. Then we kiss some more and more. And yes, I thought, that's pretty much right. An amenable boy. Thank you so much. I love that expression, an amenable boy, to describe Tiller. We started this podcast in 2017, so there's a historical reason for this, you know, the Trump, the Trump administration, our entire reason for existence. And <laughs> as I was reading your novel, I was thinking, wow, we haven't done really very many episodes about characters or people who are amenable at all, which is a little sad. <laughs> the world's not been very amenable. <laughs> the world has been very something else. Well, you know, the, the, the term amenable is an interesting word for me because, of course, there's a legal aspect to it. It means like literally someone who's subject to or, or, uh, or obligated to do something. Um, uh, it's uh, someone who's tractable, you know, persuadable, who can be in some ways, um, you know, moved uh, by your force. And and that's the funny thing about this book is, you know, he's the he's the narrator of the novel and his name is Tiller, but he's actually someone who's who's kind of adrift, who's passive, um, who's waiting for something. And and that was one of the tricks of writing the book for me was that how do you write a book about a passive person but have, you know, so many things happen? <laughs> and of course, uh, the easiest way is to have things happen to him. Um, but but not for him to feel passive throughout the novel, that, that at some point, you know, he takes charge, he takes command. And also in that scene, he's not 
totally passive. I mean, he, he acts, right? He makes a decision. He's quite actually sort of strong-willed when it comes to protecting people that he cares about. He's more amenable with the people that he loves. And there's a lot of love in the novel, you know? Um, he loves Val, who he's uh, living with in the present day thread that we just read about. He loves Pong, the Chinese immigrant entrepreneur who he befriends and travels with when he's in college. He loves food. He loves language. At one point in the book, he says, I'm no longer shy about openly cherishing what I cherish, which is a really nice line. Um, you started this book, I'm guessing, I don't know your exact timeline, uh, before this Trump era and the divisions and strife of that time. So what caused you to write a book about openness and connection and keep at it despite what's been going on in this country? Well, I, I started it to start the book just before the Trump era, but I was actually writing the book. It's taken a long time to write this book <laughs> through the era, too. And, and, and through the, I guess, the feeling that, you know, we people aren't talking to each other, just shouting at each other. And um, I don't know how that aligned with something that was um, kind of rolling around in my in my chest and in my spirit, which was that, um, you know, I just kind of felt a bit in, I suppose, a certain kind of rut, uh, a certain kind of stasis that was comfortable, but but a little worrying, you know, and, you know, obviously there are lots of things that are rolling in my, in my, around in my head about the country and have been uh, for a long time about inequality, about um, racism, about the haves and have nots and have everythings, uh, just the, the, the stratification of our society. Uh, and the silos we live in, you know, I was feeling like, and myself personally, feeling a little isolated, feeling like cut off from the joys of the world, and and feeling as if uh, I needed to break out. <laughs> That's like describing the last year of my life, anyway. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, we. It, it's funny that you know this book was written before the pandemic, but uh, it's a book about somehow not being able to savor or losing that sense of being able to savor everything uh, around you, the people, the places, the things. Um, and, and, and I guess ultimately it's a book, um, you know, one of the things that it's interested in is a certain kind of hunger. And it's an unspecific hunger. It's a hunger for something that some part of our body just feels is, is missing, you know, a depletion. Maybe that's what it is in this world. You know, we have so much at our at our grasp in terms of information and data and 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 in a virtual you know connection to things. But the power of touch, the power of the visceral engagement with things, is something that I think we shouldn't forget. And it seems like the pandemic has caused us to live very much in the past and the future. And one of the things that your book does is call us back to the present. And I think particularly like the character of Tiller is so interesting to me. And I also think in relation to our recent politics about the ways that people's self-conceptions differ from the ways other people view them, which is very much a situation that Tiller finds himself in repeatedly in like really fascinating situations. And very much also in relation to the character of Pong, who's an exuberant Chinese uh, entrepreneur and immigrant. And he has many successful entrepreneur ventures going for him. And he draws Tiller into his sphere. And I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the dynamic between those two characters. Yeah, well, Pong was the original inspiration for the novel. He He's the fellow who um, made me think, oh, I want to write a story about a guy like him. You know, irrepressible, charismatic, sort of a 
not money hungry necessarily, just uh, entrepreneurial in every sense. You know, he's looking for opportunity, uh, connecting people, and he's a good person essentially. Uh, so that was the that was my spark. But the more and more I thought about it, uh, the more I asked the uh, a secondary question, which became the most important question, which is, why do I care? <laughs> you know, why am I so needing a guy like Pong in my consciousness and in my spirit? And and I felt as if um, he would be a mentor, a hero, a way to lead somebody who, you know, had lost that savor, um, both just naturally and just because he's a young dude uh, into the world, uh, you know, a, a kind of partner. And, and so that dynamic is definitely one of mentorship, brotherhood. But, you know, frankly, it's one of love, too. You know, they, they, they love each other like brothers, like colleagues. I mean, and that's something that, uh, you know, maybe I hadn't seen a lot of in, in fiction. You know, just the, the love between two men who aren't having, obviously, a romantic relationship, but, but are tuned to one another um and and hopeful that the other will give them something that um that is meaningful and lasting you know that feeling of exploring and being reaching out toward the world and and having a whole bunch of different experiences the the thing that the book that it reminded me of this podcast is always about bringing up old literature as well is is Saul Bellow's Augie Adventures of Augie March I don't know if you're familiar with that book yes absolutely but that was something that that came to mind because also that's a lot of, that's a very physical sensation book and it's all about Chicago and Chicago's wealth of experiences and all that sort of wonderfulness is there's a power in that. Yes. Yes. And, but I didn't want him to just be alone in it, I suppose, you know, I, you know, it's about, I guess, experience to me, you know, someone asked me, you know, what, what is your like favorite thing to eat or something like that? And, and I, I don't separate that from, who I'm with and why, what I'm doing there. You know, it, it's not just a palatal experience. And, and the world is not just an experience about seeing stuff, right? It's about seeing stuff with somebody. Uh, it's about experiencing stuff with somebody. And even if you're alone, you're thinking about maybe the person you would want to be there, <laughs> right, <laughs> with you. Uh, riding herd or riding in the saddle and and... And so that you can talk about it, you can, you know, it makes it much more nuanced, complex and rich um, rather than just this one time thing. One of the primary kinds of experience in the book is food. There's a ridiculous amount of food in a good way in the novel. Um, for anybody who's hungry, they should read this book, but where, where, be near a grocery store. Um, Tiller meets Pong during a test taste test of frozen yogurt. Um, maybe they meet slightly before that, but that's one of their important early counters. Um, and one of... Uh, one of Pong's uh, uh, stores in Dunbar, which is a town that's a lot like Princeton, it seems like to me. And Val's son becomes a famous, uh, Val's son, who we met, who is mentioned in that first passage you read, becomes a fa fa locally famous child chef, you know. And that's to say nothing of the meals that Tiller and Pong's business partners have all over the world at high-end steak restaurants and in Hawaii and in mainland China. China. So I've been in your kitchen, at least not the one where you are now, but one back in New Jersey. I know that you love food and care about food, but I've never seen you celebrate food this explicitly as a kind of binding force in the novel. Was that a conscious decision or that kind of just evolved? It kind of evolved, but I found that I, you know, it gave me a lot of ways to think about how people connect. And also it allowed me, as I found as I started to write 
get into the novel because the novel, you know, kind of changes, it mutates. It, you know, it starts out as a fairly realistic novel and then it mutates into something of a farce, you know, where things end absurd, um, which was part of the plan, but not perhaps the face of it as, um, you know, I knew that the, the, the level of reality and the things that would happen would escalate but I never, I didn't quite understand the the ways in which and to the extent to which things would escalate. And and it's and food actually worked well that way. I mean, food, sure, again, you know, there's an interest in food and, and there's some plot lines around it. But ultimately, it's about, you know, the body, right? It's about sensation. And, and I did literally want this book to be sensational in, in a way that sometimes was flagrant. Uh, sometimes it was uh, bizarre, um, but always I hoped getting back to the larger idea or, you know, a more serious idea about how we define and value uh, vitality. You know, what, what, what makes us alive? What, you know, what do we care about? Uh, sometimes food is, you know, if food becomes in, in the novel a point of politics and a point of um, <laughs> um, economic theory it becomes a, a, a way uh, for people to be sensual. Uh, so, you know, it's a thing that, as a lot of Asian families know, is, you know, one of the, one of the absolutely, you know, central activities and pastimes uh, of any family, um, and, and especially families that don't necessarily communicate well in other ways. <laughs> you know, it's a way to, to enforce, enforce things. It's a way to, to reward and punish. Uh, it's a way to show love. And, uh, so that's always been running through me and... Um, so I kind of let it go through in this book in a ridiculous fashion, which which was intended. <laughs> I can't imagine what you're talking about. These Asian families that don't communicate well, but are fantastic <laughs> at cuisines. Um, this was one of the special joys, I think, of reading the book for me. My family is also Sri Lankan and, and to see a book with a Sri Lankan cooking class in it and such a vibrant Sri Lankan character also um, was really interesting. So so Tiller meets Pong when he's a dishwasher in a restaurant. Um, and as you've sort of alluded to before, the book sort of travels into and out of these realistic and, um, almost mythic stories of, of food and connection. And, um, I'm thinking is in relation to what you just said about, you know, we read this long passage about Pong's father, and then we also see Pong's father in the present day storyline, um, using essentially like a separate kitchen, which I think really gets at what you're saying. There's a lot of, uh, 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 this is obsession with, uh, a kitchen exhaust in this novel. (laughs) <laughs> I, I think kitchen t- exhaust is one of the most important aspects of a kitchen. Like you can't just cook anywhere. Yeah, I mean, if you're really cooking, if you're really cooking, you need that stuff blown out of the house. It's that's a hundred percent true. And I have to tell you that my partner and I recently spent a full day fixing our own exhaust fan in a pandemic because we didn't want to have anyone in the house. And every time I saw these exhaust mentions, I was like, "Yes, that's correct." We need to put a list on Goodreads. It says best novels about kitchen exhaust. Number one about. <laughs> CFM and uh. <laughs> well, it was also just like so silly, like like right. You don't you don't want your house to smell like the Asian food you love, like <laughs> right. which is like this other like long running narrative of of at least I don't know some yes. of the communities and some of the immigrant shame. It, it, yeah, as as a, as a 
exemplified by the the power of your exhaust fan. <laughs> so, you know, what you were talking about before, you were saying you were writing it sort of through this era. Um, I'm guessing you finished this before the pandemic um, began. So what has it been like to sort of think and talk about this book and its intense kind of bodily focus as you watch the world be so decimated by coronavirus and to have all of us removed in, in so many ways from that world that you're describing. Yeah, well, it, what a surprise, right? I mean, in, in the real world, yeah, we just take all these things for granted. The fact that we can, you know, hug a friend. I mean, I um, I actually hugged a friend the other day uh, because I, I felt like I'd He'd already had it. I'd already had it, <laughs> we think. <laughs> we thought, what the hell? We're just going to hug because I want to hug you. And it, it, it felt dangerous, of course, but, uh, but it felt also good, right? And just that simple thing, which I would not have thought about at all before. Not, you know, I wouldn't have you know, noted it to myself. And those are the kind of like, for example, eating in a restaurant. Well, it's been so bad for the food industry. I mean, this industry is, that industry is just getting destroyed. Oh, it's terrible. And I have a lot of uh, restaurant industry friends, chef friends, because I, you know, love to eat and drink and uh, wine uh, friends who, you know, are in the business of wine. And I, it just breaks my heart because I know exactly how much they've lost and are losing and how devastating it is for all their employees. And that's the thing is that it's so widespread, the damage. Um, so that's the, just the economic part of it. The, the human part of it, you know, that's how we're built, it turns out. It turns out it's not that, you know, we need things and possessions in our lives. We just need each other, even strangers. We just need the people in the background. We need that kind of noise, you know, and... And even if it most, even if before we knew most of the times a pain in the ass, the traffic, the, you know, and and the, just the just the inconvenience of humanity, boy, isn't it something that we take it back in a second, right? Because it comes along with everything else, which is, you know, the delight, the small accidental delights and joys of of each day, uh, which now. I mean, we have different ones, <laughs> you know, but 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 uh, but we live in the world, and you know, if we think about it from a evolutionary point of view, we've evolved because of this world, and and not and not because of the internet. I mean, we'll that will change us too, but but we are creatures, you know, in an, in a philosophically epicurean sense, we are atomistic, we are cells, and and and. We have to accept that. Uh, and this has shown us how, how starved we are um, and, and what a deficit it is to live this way. So speaking of the virus, we all know that this new strain of coronavirus started in Wuhan, which is the capital of Hubei province in, in mainland China, where a significant part of your novel is set not in that province, but in, on mainland China. And um, you're a Korean-American. Uh, which I remind all my Farang brethren. Is that the right way to say that word? I'm, I'm not sure Farang. Or so. Farang. <laughs> all my Farang brethren, which Wikipedia tells me is a Thai word, is not the same thing as Chinese. So why did you decide to set so much of the novel in China and make Tiller one-eighth Chinese and have his mentor, Pong, be a Chinese immigrant? Tiller is up to the point we, we when we meet him. He doesn't consider himself anything but just the, your average, uh, almost basic white boy in a, in a basic white town with someone who goes undercover and is not really noticed. Um, but 
part of Pong's allure and his appeal for Tiller is the fact that he's Asian and and it 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 kind of forces Tiller to and not in a like a really angsty way and not in a super profound way it just gets him thinking about his Asianness and so uh, it was a very conscious choice to make him just a little part Asian so that he he would not have had to deal with it his whole life but is enough so that at this point he's you know he's reckoning things he's reckoning things about his mother who was the Asian part who who gives him his Asian uh, heritage and um, reckoning all the ways in which um, you know he has he is a cultural creature too you know and in some ways he belongs and doesn't belong uh, uh, like a mainstream person like a marginal person and so it gives me it gives, it gives me a chance to to talk about those things, you know, have some fun with them, of course, but to bring up the idea that, yeah, this is still uh, the world we live in, at least the world I see that we live in, which is a multicultural world. So I think this for me is one of the most interesting things about the book. Um, Many of the characters are mixed race and um, people of different races uh, in conversation and mixing through language, through food, through music, through love. And that seems like so much of what the book is about. And that ethic is exactly the opposite of Trump's ethic, um, which fortunately we're seeing in the rearview mirror at the moment. And when Pong's investment team meets at a crowded steakhouse, I mean, there was something about these scenes that was a little bit familiar to me. You know, the crowd includes Bags Patel, who's South Asian, Lucky Che, who's Asian, Perry Alt, who's white, Marcus Founds, who's black, and and Dr. Deborah Raskin, who's Jewish. And then we see other versions of this later, you know, when the novel goes to Asia, and you see kind of these these vibrant business scenes of all these these Asian dudes hanging out um, and talking about their lives and their businesses. And this group, to me, um, the one that I just described in Dunbar, um, Tiller's, Tiller's hometown, that group seems to me like the real American future now. Can you talk a little bit about it, imagining and setting up that group? Yeah, well, this is directly from my experience, you know, um, even a town like Princeton, which, of course, I think in our conception of what Princeton is like, right? Uh, Ivy covered. It's just a manic- bunch of F. Scott Fitzgerald clones walking around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of gin drinking. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, that's still going on. <laughs> yeah, that's still going on. Uh, <laughs> Uh, where, you know, everything is supposed to be as it was in 1960, right? Uh, But of course, it's not like that at all. And and that was one of the things about Princeton and and towns like it that excited me, where you go to the bus stop for the commuter bus to New York City, and boy, you hear every sort of language, you know, Russian, Hindi, uh, you know, everything, and Eastern European languages and Chinese, Mandarin. And this is to me, it it felt like this was actually the most vibrant part of this landscape, right? Uh, the part that that was most interesting, exciting, dynamic, and um, and that I could learn from. You know, um, I don't. I think we all know what the old Princeton was like, or the old that old suburb. And but this new suburb uh, within the suburb, the secret suburb. Uh, that's peopled by people from all over the world and who, by, by the way, you know, carry with them all kinds of experiences uh, and stories. That to me is the, is the America that I think, you know, is, is being replicated all over. I mean, especially, I mean, you think about the state of Georgia and what happened in the, recently in the election and the Georgian, the suburbs around Atlanta, 
which I know from just going there. Uh, wow, what what a polyglot place! What a, what a great place to go eat. <laughs> you know, depending on which avenue of strip malls you go down, uh, and it's full of people who are like Pong and, and some of his associates doing their best, working hard, but just you know with their eyes open and um, you know they're not looking back. I mean, Pong is a borrower, right? He's not, it's not like his, his, I, list, I wrote down his food ventures that they go and visit at one point. You know, he has gnarly noodle with, with uh, you know, mad, mad maki, yo, you dirty dog and, and WTF yo. I mean, those are, he's mixing American and Asian and all kinds of different styles, right? And throughout the book, there's a great scene at a, at a bar called Garbo. Yeah. Uh, that's in China where everybody is singing Western, is karaokeing Western rock songs, right? And there's these crossing of cultures. And I I have a hobby horse about this because, you know, like I think like this is a crucial part of American culture. When people start talking about appropriation and always in a negative way, they miss that part, that borrowing is what makes American culture sort of work. And I feel like that was something that you were trying to talk about in this in this book. Oh, well, it's just because it's there, you know, and, you know, business and like Pong, you know, I have fun with those business names that he has. But, you know, he knows his audience, which is an audience that knows and wants to taste everything. Right. And we all we because of the way the world has shrunk uh, through technology and um, and, you know, jet flight, uh, we can get products from everywhere and. And he's and this and this is the thing. It's not just the things themselves, right? Pong is a savvy guy. He he under he's a global citizen, and and even more than an American. And I don't think he would consider himself American. He I don't know that he considers himself anything but someone who uh, is can be astride the whole world. Well, I I I find the global part really interesting, but I want to read this passage from this essay from Ralph Ralph Ellison called "The Little Man at Chiha Station." That actually I learned from Sugi, and I have a, a mentor in common, James Allen McPherson, who used to teach this, and I'm going to teach it this week to my class. But here he is talking about this idea of the melting pot, which had fallen out of favor by the time he was writing the essay, and so he's kind of defending it as an idea. It is here on the level of culture that the diverse elements of our various backgrounds, our heterogeneous pasts, have indeed come together, melted, and undergone metamorphosis. It's here, if we would but recognize it, that the elements of many available tastes, traditions, ways of life, and values that make up the total culture have been ceaselessly appropriated and made their own, consciously, unselfconsciously, or imperialistically, by groups and individuals to whose own backgrounds and traditions they are historically alien. Indeed, it was through this process of cultural appropriation and misappropriation that Englishmen, Europeans, Africans, and Asians became Americans. Absolutely. That is so true. And I love the comprehensive view that he has uh, and, and the idea of misappropriation, because that's what, it, that's what we all do. We don't know exactly. Nobody knows exactly what a tradition is, right? Even from our parents. You know, I, I know that the things that I got about Korean culture from my parents are Korean culture from 1960, basically, <laughs> right? Which is when they came, you know, when they were kind of coming over and, and, and teaching, quote unquote, teaching me stuff. So in some ways, we're all uh, inexpert, but also the only people who can make the call. We do our best. Something that I try to do in the book is... Uh, which is kind of reflected on the on the actual cover of the book, which I love so much. There's a kind of stacking, colorful, but st it's everything stacked. And and I kind of I never never talked to the designer, but 
that was kind of the feeling I got about both the book and the culture and the world that it was trying to describe. That we have this all these compressed layers on top of each other. Um, in some ways teetering, some ways solid, and that the compression is in certain places so fierce that it, it melts, just like Ellison was saying. I like that idea a lot and because I, I think it's just damn true. So you've talked a lot about Pong, who is this vibrant, um, exciting character and who I found myself developing a great affection for as the narrative went on. Why does Tiller like Pong so much? There's this sort of language about gathering and being gathered. And, and can you talk a little bit more about uh, your affection for Pong? You, you said that you like him. Yeah, I do like him. And, you know, I... It's but so, he does it's, bad things, Chang. You're not allowed he, to. Like, <laughs> come on. He does. He does bad things, but you know, it's bad things more by circumstance. I think generally, and I think this is the way that though, I see the world of the novel and, and 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 its people is that everyone's kind of you know subject and riven by circumstance and forced to do things that they probably wouldn't do. And isn't that the case for all of us, right? I think maybe this is my view, but. It's just, I feel like everyone is good. <laughs> and, but sometimes unintentionally, intentionally, you know, we have to do things just to, to survive, to move on, to make sense of ourselves. And, and sometimes, you know, we, we fall down. Um, but I liked Pong and I, was, I found him appealing um, for Tiller uh, because I think Tiller is essentially an orphan. He has a dad, and they have a, you know, a, a fairly nice arrangement of a of a relationship. It's very friendly and it's loving, but it's not very affecting. And and I think you know, with Tiller, he's someone who needs to latch on. I think there's a point at which he calls him. He thinks of himself as a tick, and he's trying to latch on and and just absorb as much of Pong's vitality as possible. Uh, so that he can live too. And, and, and I think sometimes we do that with people, you know, there's an epigraph about heroes in the novel, um, about heroes from Malamud. The epigraph is something about, you know, without heroes, we don't know how far we can go. So, and Pong is somebody who's, who's, you know, not, not the superhero. He's just a kind of special dude that, that makes you wonder, huh, what capabilities do I have? that are yet to be tapped. What things could could I affect in the world that I haven't yet dreamed? And that, whether you do it or not, I think is a, you know, kind of a, a delightful thing to, to hold and to kind of savor. All right, that is such a, we should, that is a perfect way to end, but we have one more thing that we want to know from you, a personal thing. Since the book is titled My Year Abroad, and it, and it, it ends up being kind of not exactly the year abroad that Taylor planned on having, but... Did you ever have a year abroad when you were in college? Well, you know, we as writers, as you well know, both of you, we sometimes write about what we wish for. And what <laughs> and I had such a great opportunity in college to study at Cambridge for a year at Queens College. And it was all set up and I got in and I was so excited for it. And then... I don't know. I had a girlfriend and, you know, I was maybe afraid and you I didn't thought go. I didn't go. Oh, you know, I still sometimes think, you know, it would have changed my whole life probably. But and who knows, maybe for the worse. But um, 
But I thought, boy, a lot of interesting stuff could have happened. I would have certainly learned a lot of interesting things and met and met people. Maybe this book is a way to, you know, exercise that regret. <laughs> well, it certainly has brought us a lot of pleasure. So thank you for that. And we appreciate you joining us today. And listeners, don't miss Chang Ray Lee's fantastic new novel, My Year Abroad, out now. Uh, thank you, Sudhi and Whitney. Great to talk. Thank you so much for joining us. That's it for this episode of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub. Our show's producer is Andrea Tudhope. Our theme music is by Travis Workman. To subscribe to Fiction Nonfiction, please type fiction slash non slash fiction into your favorite podcast app. We'd love to hear your ideas and feedback. You can reach us at fictionnonfictionpodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Facebook at FNF Pod, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. In each of these spots, you'll find links to our LitHub Radio show notes, including some of the readings we mentioned in this episode. Until next time, mask up and stay safe. 